Part three, chapter four of the Life of Florence Nightingale, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Amelia Chesley. The Life of Florence Nightingale, Volume One by Edward Tyus Cook. Section three, chapter four, Reaping the Fruit, eighteen fifty eight to eighteen sixty. With aching hands and bleeding feet, we dig and heap, lay stone on stone. We bear the burden and the heat of the long day and wished were done. Not till the long hours of light return, all we have built do we discern. Matthew Arnold You must now feel, wrote Sir John McNeil to Miss Nightingale, May thirteenth, 1858, when her work for the health of the British soldier at home was beginning to bear fruit, that you have not labored in vain, that you have made your talent ten talents, that to you, more than to any other man or woman alive, will henceforth be due the welfare and efficiency of the British Army. Napoleon said that in military affairs the moral are to the physical forces as four to one, but you have shown that he greatly underrated their value. The rapidity with which you have obtained unanimous consent to your principles much exceeds my expectations. I never dared to doubt that truth and justice and mercy would prevail, but I did not hope to live long enough to see their triumph when we first communed here of such things. I thank God that I have lived to see your success. Sir John's thanksgiving was caused by the tone and the result of a debate which had taken place in the House of Commons upon May eleventh, 1858. Lord Abrington, prompted by Mr. Herbert and Miss Nightingale, had moved a series of resolutions with regard to the health of the army, founded upon the report of the Royal Commission. He had laid special stress upon the figures, due to Miss Nightingale's insight and industry, comparing the mortality in the army in, and in civil life, respectively. He called attention to the horrible state of the barracks, and his resolutions concluded thus, that in the opinion of this house, improvements are impermittively called for, not less by good policy and true economy than by justice and humanity. The government accepted the resolutions, and Miss Nightingale's campaign had thus obtained the unanimous approval of the House of Commons. She had worked indefatigably and through many channels, and she continued so to work in order to focus and stimulate public opinion in the sense of Lord Embrickton's resolutions. By the end of 1857, the subcommissions on army medical reform were making good progress, and the report of the Royal Commission was about to be published. She devised an effective means of forcing its salient feature upon the attention of every person most concerned in the evils or most influential towards securing the necessary remedies. I have referred already to her diagrams illustrative of the mortality in the British Army. As finally prepared with Dr. Farr's assistance, they showed most effectively, at a glance, by means of shaded or colored squares, circles, and wedges, the deaths due to preventable causes in the hospitals during the Crimean War, and the rate of mortality in the British Army at home. Our soldiers enlist, as she put it, to death in the barracks. She now wrote a memorandum explaining the diagrams and pointing their moral, and had 2,000 copies printed. This anonymous publication, entitled Mortality of the British Army, is called in her correspondence coxcombs, primarily from the shape and colors of her diagrams. 
she had proposed and mr herbert agreed that the memorandum and diagram should be included as an appendix in his report in order that her pamphlet might appear as reprinted from the report of the royal commission and thus be given the greater authority so as soon as the report was issued she distributed her coxcombs to the queen and other members of the royal family to ministers to leading members of both houses of parliament and to medical and commanding officers throughout the country in india and in the colonies she had a few copies of the diagrams glazed and framed and three of these she sent to the war office the horse guards and the army medical department i do not know whether these departments hung up the present it is our flank march upon the enemy she wrote in sending an early copy to sir john mcneil and we might give it the old name of god's revenge upon murder the report of the royal commission appeared at the beginning of february eighteen fifty eight and the secretary sent one of the earliest copies to miss nightingale i like him very much she replied february fifth i think he looks very handsome lady tullock says i make my pillow of blue books it certainly has been the case with this she did not sleep over it however she was immediately up and doing among her papers there is a curious collection of letters and memoranda partly in her handwriting partly in that of mr and mrs herbert showing how industriously they set to work to pull wires in the press the monthly and quarterly reviews were in those days deemed of great importance in influencing public opinion and miss nightingale drew up and sent for mr herbert's criticism a list of the principal among them entering against each magazine or review the name of the writer whom she designated as the ideal contributor of an article upon the report they had as much trouble in adjusting the parts as a theatrical manager finds in settling his cast lord stanley for example promised to write but he was particular about his place of appearance it must be the westminster review or nowhere and miss nottingale had already allotted that place to the principal star mr herbert himself and moreover the managers in this instance were drawing up a cast for other people's houses and the editors did not in all cases prove amenable mr elwyn the editor of the quarterly rejected the article submitted to him but mr reeve of the edinburgh was an old friend of miss nightingale and he accepted her nominee though he displeased her by mangling the article in the ministerial interest however in the dailies the monthlies and the quarterlies the report had on the whole a good press and what is no less important for influencing public opinion a prompt press two these things had hardly been arranged when there was a political crisis and this involved miss nightingale and her allies in additional work lord palmerston's government was defeated on the conspiracy bill and resigned lord derby came in february twenty fifth with general peel as secretary for war here then we say good-bye for the present to the bison he had been dilatory to the last mr herbert had hoped to see the army medical school established in january and had written to Miss Nightingale to nominate suitable men for the various chairs. Not, he added despairingly, that Panmure would appoint any one, even if the angel Gabriel had offered himself, St. Michael and all angels, to fill the different chairs. He is very slow to move. Miss Nightingale took formal leave of Lord Panmure later in the year, in sending him a copy of one of her books. "'You shock me,' he replied from the Highlands in November, "'by telling me I once called you a turbulent fellow.' had any one else said so i should have denied it but i must have been vilely rude accept my apology now and to bribe you to do so i send you a box of grouse mr herbert at first cherished high hopes of lord panmure's successor 
Miss Nightingale and Mr. Herbert were particularly anxious upon a personal point. The Army Medical Department had not yet been reformed, and it was known that Sir Andrew Smith would shortly retire. By seniority, Sir John Hall would have claims to the post, and his appointment would, the Allies considered, be disastrous to the cause of reform. It would be useless, they felt, to frame new regulations without an infusion of new blood. This, therefore, was the first point on which representations were made to Lord Panmure's successor. I have seen General Peel, wrote Mr. Herbert to Miss Nightingale, February 27th, and he promised to make no appointment nor take any step in regard to the medical department or sanitary measures till he has conferred with me. I think Peel may do well if we can put him well in possession of the case. General Peel duly did what they wanted on this personal issue. I hope we may assume, wrote Mr. Herbert to Miss Nightingale, May 25th, that Smith is really gone. It is no use trying to realize the enormous importance of such a fact. They must now, he continued, fix the appointment of Alexander. Three days later he wrote to Dr. Sutherland, Please tell Miss N. that I warned Peel against the expected recommendation of Sir J. Hall, and he will, I think, be prepared to turn a deaf ear to it. I wrote yesterday to him on another subject and threw in some praise of Alexander. Such is the gentle art of influencing ministers. On June 11th, Dr. T. Alexander was appointed to succeed Sir Andrew Smith. Dr. Alexander unhappily died suddenly at the beginning of 1860. But it was a great thing for the reformers, at a time when the Army Medical Department was being recast, to have one of themselves at the head of it instead of a supporter of the ancient regime. I cannot say, wrote Mr. Herbert to Miss Nightingale, September 16th, 1858, how glad I am to have your account of Alexander. Everything in futuro must depend on him. You cannot maintain a commission sitting permanently in terrorem over a director general, and Alexander seems able and willing to be his own commission. So the Allies had done at least one good stroke of business with General Peel. Another of the new ministers, Lord Stanley, the colonial secretary, was also helpful. He will send the coxcombs out to the colonial governors, wrote Mr. Herbert, March 16th. He offered any service his position can enable him to give to assist our cause, and suggests that a commission should inspect colonial barracks, and he proposes to discuss the matter with you. Presently, however, Lord Stanley was moved from the colonial to the India office, where Miss Nightingale enlisted his interest in another sanitary campaign, which was thenceforward to fill a large space in her working life, as will appear in a later part. So then, the new government seemed promising, but it soon began to appear that at the war office the cobwebs were beyond the power of the new broom to sweep away. Some reforms were carried out, but the permanent officials were as obstructive under General Peel as under Lord Panmure. These war office subs, wrote Mr. Herbert to Miss Nightingale, June 29th, are intolerable. Half a dozen fellows sitting down to compose minutes just for the fun of the thing on a subject which they cannot possibly know anything about. Peel ought not to let these subs interfere, spoil and delay as they do. That office wants a thorough recasting, but I doubt whether Peel is the man to do it. He has a clear head and good sense, but I think he is overpowered by the amount of work which Panmure, by the simple process of never attempting to do it, found so easy. But alike amid hope and care, amid fear and anger, Mr. Herbert and Miss Nightingale worked away at their reforms unceasingly. Throughout the year 1858, she was in a very weak state of health. 
She divided her time, as before, between Malvern and Old Burlington Street, traveling backwards and forwards in an invalid carriage, and escorted by Mr. Clough, now sworn to her service. Her aunt, Mrs. Smith, was still in frequent attendance upon her. Her father was with her for a while at Malvern, and, like everyone else, enjoined the desirability of rest. "'Well, my dear child,' he wrote afterwards from Lee Hurst, September 25th, "'it's no small matter to see your handwriting again, "'and to make believe that you are a good deal more than half alive. "'But the worst of it is that there's no depending upon you "'for any persistence in curing yourself, "'while you have so many others to cure. "'I often wonder how it is that you, who care so little for your own life, "'should have such wonderful love for the lives of others.' "'She seldom saw her mother and sister,' In June 1858, her sister married. Thank you very much, wrote Miss Nightingale to Lady McNeil, July 17th, for your congratulations on my sister's marriage, which took place last month. She likes it, which is the main thing. And my father is very fond of Sir Harry Verney, which is the next best thing. He is old and rich, which is a disadvantage. He is active and has a will of his own and four children ready-made, which is an advantage. Unmarried life, at least in our class, takes everything and gives nothing back to this poor earth. It runs no risk, it gives no pledge to life, so on the whole I think these reflections tend to approbation. For herself, she thinks, wrote her aunt, that each day may be the last on which she will have power to work. And her ally, Mr. Herbert, was also feeling the strain. He had all the four subcommissions at work, and from time to time during the year, 1858, he broke down, on one occasion under a sharp attack of pleurisy. It was now Miss Nightingale's turn to lecture him. She wrote to Mrs. Herbert, begging her not to let Sidney call. I really am not ill, he wrote, March 18th, only washy and weak, while I always recover wonderfully, and paying you a visit tomorrow will do me no harm but the contrary. She wrote to Mr. Herbert himself, suggesting a cure at Malvern. I should like to come, he said, September 16th, and look at the place which I have a notion I shall some day go to, and see you episodically, unless you would rather not be seen. But I do not think that either of the allies expected or desired the other to take the advice which they interchanged. Well or ill, each of them worked unrestingly. 3. Upon the matter of barracks, Mr. Herbert did the harder work. He inspected barracks and hospitals throughout the kingdom. He wrote or revised each report upon them, but he, or Dr. Sutherland, or Captain Galton, or all of them, reported the results of each inspection to their chief, as they sometimes called her, and she was unfailing in suggestions and criticisms. When the London barracks were being overhauled, for General Peel had obtained a substantial grant from the Treasury for immediate improvements, the woman's touch came into play. She called into counsel her Crimean colleague, Mr. Sawyer, and took the improvement of the kitchens in hand. The work was only just begun when Mr. Sawyer died suddenly. His death, she wrote to Captain Galton, August 28th, is a great disaster. Others have studied cookery for the purposes of gourmandizing, some for show, but none but he for the purpose of cooking large quantities of food in the most nutritious manner for great numbers of men. He has no successor. My only comfort is that you were imbued before his death with his doctrines, and that the Barracks Commission will now take up the matter for itself. In the work of the other three sub-commissions, Miss Nightingale had a large share. Mr. Herbert, Dr. Sutherland, Dr. Farr, statistics, were in constant consultation with her, personally or by correspondence. 
There are hundreds of letters to her at this period full of technical detail. I give in, writes Mr. Herbert. Your arguments are not to be answered. I want your help very much. I send a disagreeable letter I have received from Sir J. Hall. I will call on you tomorrow and talk it over. I send you a copy of the instructions. I want help and advice. At every stage of each transaction, the Allies were in close cooperation. The correspondence with Dr. Sutherland is sometimes in a lighter vein, and Mrs. Sutherland's letters to Miss Nightingale are deeply affectionate. But the doctor, who was not always very businesslike, sometimes tried the patience of the exacting lady-in-chief. Her aunt records a day when a tiff with Dr. Sutherland caused her niece a serious attack of palpitation of the heart. Mr. Herbert was ill at the time, and was waiting for a draft, which Dr. Sutherland was to prepare for submission to the Secretary of State. Miss Nightingale was requested to put pressure upon the doctor. At last the draft came, and Mr. Herbert did not like it. He begged Miss Nightingale to use her influence in obtaining some revisions. Dr. Sutherland did not take this move kindly, and declined to call upon her. The quarrel, however, was speedily composed. At a later date, Miss Nightingale spent some weeks in the house of William and Mary Howitt at Highgate. "'It is not a mere phase,' wrote Mary Howitt, "'when I say that we shall feel as if she had been left a blessing behind. "'I suspect that this visit was in order to enable Miss Nightingale "'to keep a firmer touch upon the big baby, "'as she and Mrs. Sutherland sometimes called the doctor. "'This is the first day of grouse shooting, Caratina,' wrote he, "'when the barracks commissioners were in the north. "'But as you will allow none of your wives to go to the moors, "'the festival has passed off without observance.' Thus, then, the reformers worked during 1858. Their main labors were interrupted in the middle of the year by the last fight over the Netley Hospital. Lord Panmure had gone ahead with the building in spite of Miss Nightingale's objections and of her conversion of Lord Palmerston to her views. But since then, the report of the Royal Commission had appeared. The Hospitals and Barracks Subcommission had presented an interim report against Netley, and there was a new Secretary of State. Mr. Herbert and Miss Nightingale made a hard fight, and she wrote a series of newspaper articles in the hope of stirring up public opinion. But General Peel was actuated by the same motives that governed Lord Panmure. He appointed another committee to report on the adverse report, and proceeded with the building. Unhappily, the country which has led the van in sanitary science, says an impartial authority, has as its chief military hospital a building far from satisfactory. Miss Nightingale's final defeat on this particular issue suggested to her the importance of instructing public opinion upon the whole question of hospital construction. She accordingly contributed two papers on the subject to the Social Science Congress at Liverpool in October 1858. Her friend Dr. Farr, who was present, reported the marked attention which the reading of the papers attracted, and at the request of Lord Shaftesbury, the president of the Congress, Miss Nightingale presented her manuscript to the city of Liverpool as a memento of the occasion. These papers were the germ of her famous Notes on Hospitals, to which we shall come in the next part of this memoir. 4. On the main issue of army medical reform, Miss Nightingale sought to influence public opinion by the distribution, among carefully selected persons, of her notes on matters affecting the health, efficiency, and hospital administration of the British Army. The notes were written, and for the most part printed, in the preceding year, and I have already described them. 
The distribution of them at this time brought her letters of encouragement from many of the most illustrious and influential personages in the land. The prince consort, in an autograph letter of thanks, took occasion to assure her once more of the queen's high appreciation of her services. The princess royal, then crown princess of Prussia, begged for a copy, and Miss Nightingale, in reply, November 9th, asked Sir James Clark to express for her how very gratifying the Princess Royal's kind message was. I cannot tell you the deep interest I feel in that young heart so full of all that is true and good, or with what pleasure I anticipate the benefit to her country and ours from her being what she is. These two women, between whom there were many points of sympathy, were often to correspond and to meet in later years. The Duke of Cambridge, in a particularly cordial letter, assured Miss Nightingale that the whole army is most sensible of the devotion with which you may be said to have sacrificed yourself to its work on a recent memorable occasion, and I cannot but add my personal admiration of your noble conduct on that as on all other occasions. The Duke added the hope that from time to time he might have it in his power to carry out her valuable suggestions for the comfort and welfare of the troops. Miss Nightingale often trounced the commander-in-chief in her correspondence. He had so little sympathy with any radical reform that she could not consider his popular title of the soldier's friend to be really well-deserved. Yet she had a certain fondness for him and was alive to his better qualities. She had seen him first during the Crimean War, and she recalled a characteristic incident. What makes George popular, she wrote, is this kind of thing. In going around the Scutari hospitals at their worst time with me, he recognized a sergeant of the guards, he has a royal memory, always a great passport to popularity, who had had at least one-third of his body shot away, and said to him with a great oath, calling him by his Christian and surname, "'Aren't you dead yet?' The man said to me afterwards, "'Safilin o his royal highness, wasn't it, mum?' with tears in his eyes. George's manner is very popular, his oaths are popular, with the army, and he is certainly the best man, both of business and of nature, at the horse guards, that even I admit, and there is no man I should like to see in his place. Miss Nightingale was careful to send copies of her notes to those who by their pens could influence public opinion. Among these was Harriet Martineau, who, to whom Miss Nightingale wrote November 30th. The report is in no sense public property. I have a great horror of its being made use of after my death by women's missionaries and those kinds of people. I am brutally indifferent to the wrongs or the rights of my sex, and I should have been equally so to any controversy as to whether women ought to or ought not to do what I have done for the army. Though a woman, having the opportunity and not doing it, I ought, I think, to be burnt alive. Miss Martineau, promising to be discreet, asked if she might make use of Miss Nightingale's facts and suggestions. The offer was promptly accepted, and Miss Martineau was supplied with copious powder and shot. Miss Nightingale was probably the more attracted by Miss Martineau's offer to popularize her notes, owing to a very earnest letter from Dean Millman. He had read the notes, with serious attention and profound interest, and asked, December 18th, Is all this important knowledge, this strong practical good sense, this result of much toil, thought, experience, to be confined to half-averted official ears, to be forced only on the reluctant attention of a few, and most of these too busy and perhaps too opinionated to profit by it? Is it to be buried in that most undisturbed grave of wise thought and useful information, a blue book? 
that most repulsive, unapproached, unapproachable place of sepulture? Surely you have not lived and labored your life of devotion, your labor of love, to leave public opinion untouched and unenlightened, but by what may creep out as the general result of your views, or what may be adopted by government, perhaps imperfectly and parsimoniously? Are the many, who alone by the expression of their judgment and feelings, can keep the few up to their work, and encourage them by their approval and cooperation to remain ignorant of what is of such vital import to the army, to the country, to mankind? A series of articles by Miss Martineau in the Daily News, and afterwards a popular volume, carried Miss Nightingale's suggestions at second hand into a large circle. Between these two women there was a marked attraction. The correspondence about the illness and death of Miss Martineau's niece and her reliance upon Miss Nightingale's sympathy are particularly touching. Each of them had sorrows, each was seriously ill, and each alike at once turned to her public work. At the end of 1858, Miss Nightingale put out one of the most effective of her controversial pieces. Her facts and figures about the mortality of the army in the East, as printed in her notes and in the Royal Commission's report, had not passed unchallenged and a pamphlet had appeared calling them in question. Mr. Herbert and Miss Nightingale suspected in it the hand of Sir John Hall, and she immediately prepared a reply. This is entitled, A Contribution to the Sanitary History of the British Army During the Late War with Russia. It was published early in 1859, anonymously, but all her friends detected her Roman hand. The pamphlet which provoked it is dismissed in a contemptuous footnote, an obscure pamphlet circulated without a printer's name reproduces nearly every possible statistical blunder on this and other points. It purports to be a defense of the defunct Army Medical Department by a non-commissioner, but it is more like a jeu d'esprit. The answer contained in the body of Miss Nightingale's brochure is conclusive, and the coxcombs were repeated in yet more telling and attractive form than before. It is the most concise, the most scathing, and the most eloquent of all her accounts of the preventable mortality which she had witnessed in the East. In a few truthful words, wrote Sir John McNeill, in acknowledging an early copy, December 26th, you have told the whole dreadful story, and I do not think that we shall hear any more controversial medical statistics. Facts are chills that win a ding and down a be disputed, so sang Burns, and he was seldom mistaken in his opinions. I have read every word of the contribution, and pondered every column and diagram, and I come to the conclusion that it is complete and unanswerable, but that it would be disparaging to such a work to regard it as controversial. I wish with all my heart that every young officer in the British Army had a copy of it. The old I have little hope of. Miss Nightingale's mastery of the art of marshalling facts to logical conclusions was recognized by her election in 1858 as a member of the Statistical Society. End of Part 3, Chapter 4, Reaping the Fruit, Part 1